I'd like for you to get your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're going to look at Mark chapter 9, uh, verses 33 through 37. So make sure you get your Bibles. Now let me say a word about your Bibles. Each of you as believers in Jesus Christ, you ought to have your own personal Bible. And you ought to be using it, or you should be using it in your devotional time, in your prayer, and your worship time, and in your family time as well. So it's great to have the Bible and uh, to study it and uh, learn all about it and add to it. You may want to be able to write some things in the margin or get an underlining pen or maybe just a notebook that you keep with your Bible and you write down those kinds of things. Um, it's important for us to continue our Bible study because basically that's the way we grow as disciples with Jesus Christ as our Lord. So let's read uh, chapter 9 of Mark, chapter 9, verses 33 through 37. And this is about who should be the greatest in the kingdom. Chapter 9, verses 33. I'm reading out of the Christian Standard Bible, but you can read out of any version you might have. Follow along with me. They, that is Jesus and the disciples, came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, Jesus, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent. Because on the way, they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. He took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. And may God bless the reading of his word. Let's go to the Lord in time of prayer. It's important to share our requests with each other, with our family, and then to go together in prayer as a church body, as a group of believers, we want to do that. If you have a special prayer request, please send it to the church office or to the deacons, and we will pray for that request and lift it up to the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you that even though we are spread apart by this amazing technology of the camera and the television set and, and the various websites, we're able to broadcast our worship and encourage our church members to share this worship with others and to encourage others to listen to, maybe not just on Sunday, but in again and again and again as they feel led and as we pass it around and make it out there in the world. We may even have people across the globe listening as we study your word, as we praise God, as we sing our songs. We are the church together, even though we're apart. We thank you for the opportunity to study the word in our Bible study groups. 
but also here in our worship as we focus on the word of God and as we seek to become faithful servants of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Father, we, we lift up each other. We lift up our nation, our county, our city, our governor, our leaders, our president. We, we lift up our all of us uh, to you, Father, for safekeeping, encouragement, and care. Uh, we ask, Lord, that you'll give us strength during this pandemic and you'll guide us as we seek to perhaps see a way out of the end of this and start to put our lives back together, changed perhaps, but again, seeking to serve you and to be a servant of all. We pray especially for our missionaries, those on the foreign fields and here at home, that you'll give them strength to continue to minister to those that are devastated by tornadoes and hurricanes and problems that occur uh, in families and in cities, uh, Lord, that uh, the name of Jesus Christ might be exalted and lifted up and that many will hear and receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. Uh, we pray, Father, for our worship today that you will guide us to bless others and it will be a very special time uh, in the Lord as we study your word. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You know, when I first came to be the interim and you called me, I said that I would do a series of sermons on standing in the gaps. Uh, I managed to do the first one, G, on giving, and then it seemed like the pandemic hit and we couldn't attend. And we were beginning to do uh, our services on tape or recording them. We tried to do one live and presented across the various venues and platforms in the media. And I thought, well, maybe we'll substitute some other sermons in there. Uh, and, and then we'll just continue whenever we get back together as a church. But having prayed about that, I thought maybe that was not quite the best thing to do. I mean, we had good, good worship services and, and I preached. I felt what I the Lord was leading me, but I just felt this pull back to talk about the need while you're without a pastor and I'm your interim to look at the church and to evaluate some of the things that we're going to need to do. And it seems to me that those things are, are necessary even now more than ever. So I picked up with prayer and we did a, a, a series on a prayer or a sermon on prayer. That's the P. And today we're going to do the first of the two S's. Uh, this one is on servanthood. And then next Sunday, uh, good Lord willing, I want you to get your Bibles and a pen and a piece of paper because we're going to work on sharing and then I was going to leave uh, A for attendance. So it's giving, attendance, prayer, serving, sharing. Uh, I was hoping to do attendance, the good Lord willing, when we got back together again. Or at least the Sunday maybe before we're able to worship together. Uh, so we'll try and do it that way. Uh, even though it's a little out of order, G-A-P-S-S, -S, giving, attending, praying, serving, sharing. It's still what we need to do to stand in the gaps. Uh, 
And even more now, not just because you're without a pastor, but because the whole world has become topsy-turvy. And we have this pandemic, and we do hope that the shelter at home doesn't become the new normal. This will change our lives for sure, because we've never experienced anything like this. But the basic principles of our faith will not change. Diseases may come and go, uh, tornadoes, hurricanes, problems, but the gospel remains the same. And God is the same, and Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we can hold on to him, grasp hold of him, and be encouraged by the fact that he died on the cross for our sins. So it's important for us to continue in understanding how we can be faithful servants as a body of believers, even when we don't have a pastor. When you lose a pastor, there, there is a hole, a little bit of a hole, a little bit of a vacuum in the leadership. The fact is the pastor was leading you and now the pastor's not here. So people step up to take that role and to do that task and that's happening. But the question is, how are we going to do this? And how are we going to be able to stand in the gaps to help do the ministry of the church? Obviously, we have the deacons. We have our pastoral staff. We're trying our best in, in these circumstances to do that. And it's amazing the kinds of things that we're doing, which were different from before, to reach out even though we can't go personally to the hospital or the nursing home or the family home. We're learning how to do this to convey our love and compassion and desire to do ministry to our church in many, many different ways. I guess maybe the old fashioned telephone is, is come back into vogue. I guess for sure we're texting. People are locked on to their iPhones and texting. I'm glad that they're not driving. Not too many people are driving, but they're texting. And then there's all kinds of other ways uh, in media and otherwise to share with individuals. Perhaps even families are sitting down and talking together. They're not supposed to go anywhere. So they're sitting down, hopefully, and getting to know each other without a cell phone or a uh, some other computer in their, in their midst, and they're being able to learn those kinds of family gatherings and family interaction that's the hallmark of the strength of the Christian family. I hope that's the case with you all um, as, as we go through this pandemic. But there was a time when Jesus and the disciples were in the midst of the throes of ministry, Great things had happened. And the disciples, though, kind of got it wrong. And Jesus had to correct them. As a matter of fact, Mark chapter 8, uh, where Peter makes this tremendous confession of faith. And he says to Jesus, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. It becomes apparent to Jesus that the disciples don't quite understand what that means. This is the case in the other three Gospels that we call the synoptic Gospels because they see it with one 
view together, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this account is a high watermark in the ministry of Jesus when the disciples, including Peter, are able to confess that Jesus is the Messiah. They've seen his power. They've seen his majesty, his glory, the miracles that he's done, the healing that he's done. And they recognize that he is the one promised by God to come and reestablish the kingdom of Israel and sit on the throne of David forever. He is the Messiah. The word Messiah means anointed one. And in your New Testament, it's often translated Jesus the Christ. The word Christ means the anointed one. So every time you read that the word Christ, C-R-I-S-T, it's not the last name of Jesus. It's actually the word the Messiah, the anointed one. Christos in Greek means the anointed one. So they're recognizing that Jesus was the one foretold by the prophets long ago that the people of Israel were waiting for, desperately waiting for, who would come and bring them back the kingdom of God. But there was a mistake because apparently the disciples thought that this was to be a physical kingdom and they would be physical leaders in that kingdom with position and power and authority. And Jesus begins to spend the time to tell them that they've got it wrong. When Peter told him that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer, in chapter 8, verse 32 and following, Peter rebuked him. And Jesus had to spend the time explaining what the kingdom was all about. After they had been on the Mount of Transfiguration, where they saw Moses and Elijah, and they were coming down to Galilee and going through Galilee to Capernaum and quite possibly to Peter's house, Jesus had a lesson for the disciples because from here on in, Jesus begins to specifically teach to the disciples. He doesn't want to be crowded by other people, not because he doesn't love them, but he wants to make sure that the disciples get it that they understand, and to this point, they're not really understanding it. So as we come to chapter 9 and verse 33, they're coming to Capernaum, maybe even Peter's house. Peter had a house there. And when he got into the house, he asked them, what, what guy, what were you talking about? Guys, you're on the way, and I saw you back there talking, and you seem to be a little animated, and, and like there's a really good debate, you know, uh, going on, and, and Jesus isn't, isn't dumb. He knows what it's all about, but he's asking them. He says, kind of, what are you talking about? What's going on? And they didn't want to tell him because fundamentally they got it wrong. And the whole issue was going to be who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus had already said in, in chapter uh, 8, uh, and following, verse 34 and following, uh, if anyone wants to 
follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? You see, Jesus was trying to share with them that there was something different about his kingdom. And they thought it would be a physical kingdom, and each one of them would be given a territory, power, and authority. But the squabble wasn't just about that. They wanted to know, and they were arguing about who would be Jesus's right-hand man. Who would be second in authority? Who would be second in power? Who would be able to rule the roost when Jesus wasn't there, when Jesus took a vacation? Who would be able to dictate to all the others what to do and how to do it and when to do it? That's what they were arguing about. Well, we learn something here in this verse about how to be great in the kingdom of God. And you have to understand that Jesus is, is offering them a paradigm shift. They thought that Jesus would go right down there to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and it would be politics and he would be crowned king and each one of them would be governors or members of his cabinet. Or they thought he would usher in a brand new kingdom. They'd go to war and they'd destroy the Romans and they would bring about a brand new Israelite kingdom. They also thought that they would become the new leadership. Time for somebody to get things done around here and we're just the right ones to do it. This was all human ideas. God's idea was that Jesus would suffer. To follow Jesus meant that you had to be willing to toe the line, to suffer with him. And Jesus wanted them to recognize that being in leadership meant being willing to serve. So there are three things that I want to share with you about this particular passage. And these are the three things that come to my mind in terms of what the scripture's trying to say about us as well. The first thing is that the disciples didn't quite understand what it meant to be great in the kingdom. That is, they needed to realize what it meant to be great, what greatness was all about. And as a response, you and I need to understand what it means to be great in the church. Well, surely we put the pastor up on a pedestal and he tells us what to do and when to do it and how to do it. But see, that's not really what a pastoral role is. And we learn something from Jesus about what ministry is all about. So the first thing we need to realize in verses 33 through 34 is that we've got to redefine and rethink what greatness is all about. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he said, what, what are you talking about? But they were silent, 
because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who would be the greatest. See, rank was an important issue in ancient life. It was obviously understood that you were of noble birth and you would be the highest. But Jesus wasn't of noble birth. He was born of a virgin in Bethlehem, although he was from the house of David. He wasn't able to claim the throne. He wasn't a relative of Herod, any of the sons of Herod. He was a commoner, a no man. Many Jewish people hoped that they could get higher by earning more money and making money. Some Jewish people thought during Jesus' day that if they were good, they'd get a new status in the world to come. And maybe they would have something different then. The disciples were betting on the idea that Jesus would be the usurper of the king and would roll down into Jerusalem with power and take over and then raise their status. We need to understand really that that's not what greatness is all about in the kingdom of God. Jesus did not affirm this idea of greatness. As a matter of fact, he, he said something totally different in opposition to it, totally opposing the other side of what greatness is in the ancient world and even today. Because you know what? We think sometimes people are great because they have a lot of money, they have a lot of positions, they have status in the community, or they got a great pedigree. They were born and they are somebody and so they must be really, really great. But that's not true in God's world. He doesn't measure greatness by your pedigree, by your possessions, not by your intelligence or your ability. He matters greatness according to your heart. Jesus began to teach them in verse 35. We're called that Jesus gathered all of the 12 together and he sat down. Now, this may be Peter's house and he's getting them all around the couch in the, the man cave maybe and he's saying, look, I want to tell you something. And he utters this statement which is, is just amazing. And it's something that we should think about. It's something that we should ponder, something that we should actually consider in terms of our own life and what we're doing in our own life. This is what he said. He said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. What Jesus is saying is that we must become humble. We don't want to be the first. We need to be the last. Letting everybody go in front of us. We need to be the one who is humble and serves others. In the mad rush to get out there in the world, there are people pushing and shoving and clawing and hurting others to get somewhere, to be somebody, to accomplish something. 
And Jesus is saying, no, no, look. You need to be the last. And you need to be the servant. In Jesus' day, the people with power were very eminent. They expected them, others to, to serve them. They expected others to serve them. But Jesus turns this upside down. And he says, if we are to be great in the kingdom of God, then we must be willing to be servants. Greatness does not demand service from others. Rather, it gives service. The word here is used, diakonos, which, by the way, the word deacon comes from. One, one interpreter of the Greek New Testament said that this, this word refers to a servant to a king, a waiter who serves food and drink, or a deacon. And I'm quoting him, one who, by virtue of the office assigned him by the church, cares for the poor and has charge of and distributes the money collected for their use. Deacons and pastors, as well as church folk, need to be servants, caring for people, making sure others are fed and clothed and warm and protected and safe, making sure others have hope that there's the absence of fear, that there's protection. Jesus said that if you want to be the greatest, you need to be the servant. And that's amazing. If we want to be first in God's kingdom, we need to be servant of all. There's a song that somebody wrote about that. If we really, really want to have our church grow, to have it deepen in its spiritual walk, to see God moving in great and mighty ways in our church, then folks, we need to learn to be servants. It doesn't matter who gets to be first. That's not to be argued over. What needs to be done is actually being a servant. And Jesus is chastising his disciples to recognize that they got it all turned around. Topsy-turvy. Rather than arguing about who needs to be the greatest, they need to seek to be the servant of all. Not argue about it, just do it. When a pastor leaves, sometimes the church begins to fall down. I've seen that happen. Because in some places, the ministry of the church is actually the pastor's ministry. Now think about this for a minute. And when the pastor leaves, nobody does that ministry because it wasn't their ministry in the first place. Well, on the other hand, I've seen churches thrive and grow even when they're without a pastor because the ministry that they were doing was their ministry. They owned it. They wanted to do it. And even when the pastor left and they were looking for a new pastor, they continued to do ministry, caring for others, encouraging others, lifting others up. 
This is the important part of what a church is, the body of Christ, is when together we are doing ministry. And not just because the leader's doing it. Jesus said, if you want to be, if you really want to be the greatest in the kingdom, then you need to be last and servant of all. If you want to be first, then you need to be last and servant of all. Do we have this sense of what religion is? What our faith is? Oh, because it's all about me and how good I am. That's what the Pharisee said. The publican just said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. If we recognize our humble status before the Lord and the gratitude and the grace that he's given, he's given to us, the mercy that he's given to us, and we've responded with gratitude to his grace, then we need to love others because Jesus also died on the cross for them. And we need to serve them, to encourage them. We need to be servants of all. Now, Jesus wasn't quite finished. This portion here in Mark, there's a few more details in Matthew and Luke. Matthew 28 and Luke about chapter uh, 10 or so. There's a few more details there. But here's what Jesus did. After, after sitting down in Peter's house, he may very well have held on to one of Peter's children. He, he took a child. This is what it says. He took a child and stood him up in the midst of them. Now, this is interesting because children really had no standing. Oh, well, back then they were to be seen and not heard, right? But they had no rights. You were an adult, you were important, but not if you were a child. But he took this child, maybe Peter's own child, and had him stand among them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, and again, the second statement that he makes is very profound and very important because it has to do with the way we look outside of our own church building, our own church family. We look outside of our own families and we decide how we're going to view the world and how we're going to minister to the world. This is what Jesus said, whoever receives, uh, is one of the translations, or welcomes one little child such as this. And see, this is, the, this is the illustration. This is what Jesus is doing as, as an object lesson in a way. Here's the child. Maybe it's Peter's child. Maybe it's one of the other disciples' children. Maybe it's just been there playing. But he stands the child up. And you need to realize the child has no, he has no standing. And he says, um, he says, whoever receives one like this, someone with no power, no standing, who needs help, who can't survive unless somebody cares for them, whoever does receive this little child, such as this in my name, welcomes me. That's like, what? I thought I, I was, you know, you're my rabbi, Jesus, and I'm welcoming you. No. Jesus said, if you welcome the downtrodden, the orphan, the widow, the oppressed, 
If you welcome them, those who are hurting, those who are in need, you're welcoming Jesus. You're humbling yourself and you'll be the greatest. In Matthew 18, Matthew recorded another phrase of Jesus at the same time. Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Children have that natural humbleness. You know, they're not necessarily all that skilled in deception and deceit and pawing for prominence and priority and power. And Jesus said, well, you know what? You need to become like a little child. And when you become like a little child, you'll be the greatest in the kingdom. Here we learn that Jesus is recorded this in, in Mark. He says, look, if you welcome this little child, you've welcomed me. Well, that's not what you do. You, you don't welcome children. You welcome the prominent and the powerful and the wealthy in the community. You know, we, we bring them in. We give them the place of priority because we think that's what's supposed to do, what we're supposed to do in leadership. But in reality, what happens for Jesus is to turn that around and say, well, what about those who have no standing and no power, no authority? The penniless, the hurting, those that are struggling. If we receive them, welcome them, then you know what? We receive Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. It's not that we just received Jesus. And this is what's so profound about this statement and really amazing. That, that Jesus is trying to teach them the opposite of what they were arguing about using a whole different way of looking at life. Not looking at the powerful and the mighty, but looking at the powerless and the hurting and the weak. Jesus said, listen, I want you to know that whoever welcomes me, and of course we welcome him by welcoming the child, whoever welcomes me does not just welcome me, but him who sent me. So if you welcome the powerless, you welcome Jesus. If you welcome Jesus, you welcome God. Jesus comes with the powerless. Jesus comes... God comes with Jesus. That's what's amazing. John, uh, James, uh, the, the brother of Jesus in, in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 27, says, Pure and undefiled religion before God, the Father, is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. See, here's the point. We, we need to understand really what greatness is all about in the kingdom. We need, secondly, to become humble. And third, we need to practice true religion as Jesus sees it. Not as we see it. Not as the world might see it. But the way that Jesus sees it. I mean, this is, this is really amazing. If we receive children, think about this. And, and, and of course, it's an illustration Children, 
They're not people of power. They don't have wealth. They don't have authority. They're powerless. They are weak. They need help. If we receive them, then we receive Christ. If we receive the Messiah, the Christ, then we receive God. I've learned that in Jewish custom, a person's agent, uh, which is sort of similar like your business representative, um, could act on behalf of the person who sent him. To the extent that, that he is able to represent the one who sent him, the agent is usually given the full authority of the good housekeeping stamp of approval. Yep, you're my agent. And what, you, what I tell you to do, you go do it, right? And the fact is that this is applied in the Old Testament to the messengers of God, the prophets. They brought God's word. So why wouldn't it be true of Jesus? So we, we serve Jesus, not just because he's Jesus, but he also brings us the Father. And we are created by the Father. And we get to know our Savior, and we get to know our God. And it's amazing. Now I know, and I believe in the Trinity, and Jesus is God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But you understand the deeper sense that comes by knowing God as well. In this, that if you receive Jesus here, if you receive the little child, you receive Jesus. If you receive Jesus, you receive the one who sent him. Jesus was the representative of God. And you know, the unique thing is that we are to be the representatives of Jesus. Think about that for a minute or two. We are to be Jesus to others and to receive others who are weak and powerless, and hurt, and hold, and tell them about Jesus. Feed them, and clothe them, and help them to come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I think that this whole thing is what the church needs to do to, to literally serve. During the time of the interim, we can't let our service drop. We need to reach out and to serve others in the name of Jesus Christ, showing Jesus to them and then God the Father as well. And this is what we're called to do to stand in the gaps. Not only give and attend and pray, but serve. I know it's difficult in this pandemic. How are you going to serve? Well, start by serving your family. I heard of a family who... The one member of the family thinks everybody should serve them. But start serving your, your children, serving the weak. I guess we can do this when we get out of the shelter at home time. But start to ask the Lord to teach you some ways to serve in the community, to serve others, to help through these difficult times. And especially when we're able to go out to open the door to figure out who needs help. I think there are three basic things that this text in, in uh, Mark chapter 9, as well as reading it in the Matthew 18, that
that points out these three things, three basic things that we need to do in order to become first or to become great in God's kingdom and to be first in, in God's church. I mean, our church, we want to be first, not because we have to be in power, we have to be catered to, but we turn to be humble and we help others. I think there's a couple of things that it, we do these that will mean that we are faithful disciples. And this is important to the Gospel of Mark because Mark is all about telling people what it means to be a faithful disciple of Jesus. So there are three things I'd like to say. I think that, first of all, we need to put away self-centered desires and ambitions I think there's really a narcissistic trend in our society, a number one, numero uno, that's me, and I'm so selfish and so self-centered that I think the world actually revolves around me. Now, maybe we're not that bad, but we're getting kind of close, and we need to kind of put that away as sinful pride and realize that if we want to serve in the kingdom, we have to serve others, not be served. And we need to learn to put away these self-centered desires. But what about my goals? What about my dreams? You know what? None of those dreams or goals matter for time and eternity if they don't come from God. If it's not God's desire for your life. God has a dream. He has goals that are so far greater than you ever thought or dreamed of. If you're in God's will. He will show you great and mighty things that you never knew about. That's what he promises in his Bible. So put away that self-centeredness and the ambition to be somebody and start serving others. If you want to be somebody, be a servant and help by caring for those who need encouragement, who need care, who are weak and powerless. I think, secondly, we need to humble ourselves and come to Jesus like a child. And that would mean in childlike faith and independency. See, here's the point. Jesus didn't die on the cross because we're so good. We weren't. We're so bad. And that's why he died on the cross. None of us can stand before a holy God and tell him why he should let us into heaven. Because none of us deserve it. We're not perfect. And we're not valuable. We are poor, sinful folk. But what happened is that Jesus lovingly, willingly went to the cross for our sins. And man, I want to tell you something. That should make us so humble and so grateful. And we need to come to him in that kind of humbleness. Trusting him and depending upon him. This is really a radical idea because it turns the idea that I'm supposed to do my dreams and be somebody on its head and seek what God wants me to be. Who does God want me to live with? Who's God want me to be friends with? Where does God want me to work? What does God want me to do? Those are new ideas to ask God. He saved us through Jesus Christ and he has such a great and wonderful plan for our lives. But we have to come to him humbly in childlike faith, both and in dependency. 
Thirdly, I would like to say that we should learn to receive others with care and hospitality and help and encouragement. But you know what? We don't do it in, in our name. Uh, we learn that, that we do this. Jesus said, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name. We don't do it in our own name. We do it in the name of Jesus. Jesus wants us to understand the needs around us and then seek to meet those needs. That means we get new spiritual insight and vision. And then once we use that vision, we go to meet the needs of others. This would make us great in God's kingdom, not because we're first and preeminent, but because we have learned to see where the needs are and we have decided to be servants. I'm going to call the musicians back up and they're going to come and lead us in our closing song. But as we sing this song and as we finish up our worship today, here's what I'd suggest that we do. Let's ponder this about whoever should be first in the kingdom and think about personally what it means for us to be last and to be the servant of all.